here in week three this morning of our series, Jesus versus Religion. Now, and you would think that because Jesus was the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the religious leaders would have wanted to welcome Jesus. You would think that they would have wanted to work with Jesus. You would think that they would have wanted to support Jesus, but, but that's not how it was. From the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, there was this clash between Jesus and the religious leaders. They clashed with Jesus over what he did. They clashed with Jesus over what he taught. They clashed with Jesus over where he went, who he spent his time with. He just didn't fit their idea of what a rabbi, a teacher should be. So very early... The religious leaders in Jesus' day began to plot to destroy Jesus and even to kill Jesus. By the way, if you find yourself watching people closely, like the religious leaders were watching Jesus all the time, watching them closely to find fault, to see where they're messing up, to point out their failures, then you need to understand that you may be of the lineage of these religious leaders. And so you better watch out. Because Christ's followers aren't concerned with trying to catch people. Christ's followers aren't concerned without, with, with trying to condemn people or to point people's errors out. Christ's followers are concerned with pointing people to Jesus. Now the first class we looked at was between Jesus and the religious leaders over the Sabbath. The religious leaders had developed these traditions, they had developed these rules in regard to the Sabbath. They had these series of do's and these series of don'ts over what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And when Jesus came along, he broke their Sabbath rules. And when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, they were literally enraged to the point that they began to plot how they could kill him. You see, the religious leaders were more concerned with their rules than they were with people. Jesus was more concerned with people than he was with rules. Now, by the way, as Jesus spoke, Jesus taught them some things about the Sabbath that that I think we need to be reminded of. Jesus said God did not create man for the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath for man. In other words, God gave us a Sabbath day not to bind us up, not to burden us with another rule that we have to follow. God gave us a Sabbath day to protect us so that we could have a day of rest so that we would not overdo it. And then Jesus said something that was absolutely astounding. He said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, if you truly want to find rest, you're not going to find it by taking a day off. You're going to find it by coming to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said this. He said, come to me, 
all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, we can take a day off, and we can spend time with our family. We can spend time with nature. We can do all kind of other things, and we can be re-energized physically. But it is only through Jesus that we're ever going to be re-energized on the inside. It's only through Jesus that we're going to find rest for our souls. Now last week we saw Jesus and the religious leaders clashing over one of their ancient ceremonies. The, the washing of their hands to keep them from being defiled. And as we walk through this story, we discovered that religion focuses on cleaning up the outside, our habits. But Jesus focuses on cleaning up the inside. Jesus focuses on cleaning up our heart. And the root of our problem, understand, is not the habits. The root of our problem is our heart. You see, it's not what we do that separates us from God. It's who we are that separates us from God. And we need a heart change, and only Jesus can do that. But today, we're going to move to round three. And, and as we do, we're going to see Jesus clashing with the religious leaders over eating. Who he ate with. Jesus eating with sinners and so if your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 9, excuse me, I said that passage was in Matthew 9. It's not. It's Matthew, I believe, 14. But in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, it says this. As Jesus was walking, walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Now Luke's gospel tells us that Matthew left everything. When he got up from that booth, he left his past behind. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Now, Mark's gospel tells us that many of the people who followed Jesus were like this. And, and so... You need to understand that, that the majority of people that were following Jesus, the majority of people that were becoming disciples were not from religious backgrounds. They were from sinful backgrounds. And so many of the people who had become disciples and followers were from this kind of background. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Jesus heard this. He said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Now Luke's account of this gospel adds the phrase, and know they are sinners and need to repent. 
And so Luke tells us that it's not just that those that know they are sinners that Jesus calls. It's those that know they are sinners and, and have this desire to repent, to be set free from the power of sin in their life. Now, we oftentimes find stories in, in the life of Jesus that are told in just one of the Gospels. But this story right here was so important that it is found in Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, and Luke's Gospel. Now, the story begins with Jesus calling one of the most questionable men of his day to be one of his 12 disciples, Matthew, a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were, were some of the most despised, despicable people in all of Israel. They were considered the worst of sinners. They were working for the Romans, their oppressors, collecting taxes from the people of God to give to these pagan people. And on top of that, they would oftentimes gouge the people and charge them more than they should have to line their own pockets. So not only were they traitors in line with the Romans who everyone hated, they were also crooks and con men taking advantage of people. And yet Jesus called this man. Jesus called this tax collector. Now what does this tell us? I believe it tells us that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you may be, Jesus will not only save you, he will use you. Some of you think that you were too far gone. You've messed up too bad. You've done too many bad things for, for God to even save you. And, and that's a lie from our enemy. And there are others of you who, who know that you've been saved. And yet because of your failures and because of your faults and because of the sins of your past. You think God can never use me anymore. And understand that's still a lie from the enemy. Nothing could be further from the truth. God not only will save you, God will use you. Now, can I get an amen? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God will save you because he loves you. And God will use you. You can become a trophy of his grace. And history is filled with people, men and women, who not just come from questionable past, but men and women who come from disreputable past. And yet God has used them in incredible ways. You see, your past can never keep you from Jesus. Your past can never keep him from using you. It's only your present. What you do here and now, the decisions you make right now, that's the only thing. That can keep you from Jesus. But understand when you follow Jesus. You're not just leaving your past behind. The Bible says you are leaving everything behind. That's what Matthew did. That's what Peter, James and John did. And to be honest. That's what every sincere disciple has done since. Now that doesn't mean we forget our families. That doesn't mean that we necessarily quit our jobs. That doesn't mean 
a host of other things. But what it does mean is when Jesus saves us and when Jesus calls us, those things that have to do with our sinful past, we leave in the past. And as we follow Jesus, we're telling him, wherever you lead, I will go. Whatever you say, I will do. That's what being a disciple is. Being a disciple is saying, I am so in love with Jesus. I am so committed to his plan because I know his way is the best way. That I am willing to follow him to the very ends of the earth. And so Matthew did that. And so Matthew left everything behind his sinful past. And when Jesus changed Matthew's life, one of the first things that he did was he threw a party. He threw a party so that all of his friends who were a part of his past could meet Jesus. Now there are two things here that we need to understand in, in this part of this story. First, when we come to know Jesus, when Jesus has changed our life, we want our friends to know him. Don't ever forget that. If we've really been saved, if we've really met Jesus and we've understood what he has done for us, as soon as we are saved, we're going to have a desire for the people we love to experience the exact same thing that we have already experienced. And why wouldn't we? I mean, think about it. We were headed to hell. Now we're headed to heaven. We were enslaved to sin. Now we've been set free from sin. We were a slave of death. Now death has no hold on us. Why wouldn't we want other people to know that? Why wouldn't we want our friends to know the Jesus that changed our life? And so I imagine as Matthew began to think through this process of how he could introduce his friends to Jesus, he discovered that the best way was to throw a party and invite all of his friends. And so he threw this party to introduce his friends to Jesus. Now listen, if you're a Christ follower, you need to begin to think of ways to invite the people in your life to know the Jesus that has changed your life. And so the first thing we see about Matthew throwing this party is that Christ followers who know Jesus are going to have a desire to introduce their friends to Jesus. But the second thing we see here is that Jesus loved a party. The first miracle Jesus ever did was at a party. It was at a wedding celebration. Jesus turned the water into wine. And, and from that point on, throughout the life of Jesus, we discover Jesus going to parties, going to dinners, going to socials. And evidently, I mean, as we read the Gospels, we discover that Jesus was the life of the party. Now, don't get me wrong. Whenever Jesus went to a party, he partied with a purpose. I mean, his life was, was on mission, and our life needs to be on mission. And every party that Jesus went to was an opportunity. And at every party, something happened. 
But here's what I've discovered. And to be honest, all too often it is descriptive of me. We get saved. Jesus changes our life. And you know what we do? We quit going to the party. I I don't understand it. Now, Now you heard me say, more often than not, that's what happened to me. It seems like we get saved. Jesus comes into our heart. He comes into our life and he gives us life abundant. And in the eyes of the world, we become boring. And I got to tell you, they could never say that about Jesus, could they? They could accuse him of a lot of things, but they never accused him of being boring. Jesus was always at those parties. He was always socializing. He was always fellowshipping. But everywhere he went, he was on mission. And we need to understand that the same needs to be true with us. I told you that I struggled with this. In 1982, Jesus radically got a hold of my life. For several years in my Life up until that point, I was involved in all kinds of things. Things that I'm not proud of, things that, to be honest with you, I'm ashamed of. When Jesus got a hold of my life, I, I realized that, that if I was going to ever have victory over some of the habits in my life, I was going to have to make a change from where I was at right then. And so I made the decision in 1982 to transfer schools. Now, there was nothing wrong with that decision. In my life at that time, because of peer pressure and, and my, my weakness to peer pressure, I knew that if I was going to have victory and the Holy Spirit was going to gain control of my life, I needed a fresh start, not just through Jesus, but I needed, I needed a, a fresh start in where I was living, where I was going to school, all of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem. My sinful friends that I was sinning with and I was very good at sinning with, I cut ties with them. I mean, I cut ties. And this was before Facebook. This was before cell phones. I mean, this was in the dark ages of communication. And I moved to another city. But understand, I cut the relationships off. I severed them. Here I was. Jesus had got a hold of my heart. I knew that he had forgiven me. I wanted desperately to live for him. And instead, and instead of sharing what Jesus had done for me with the people who at that time were closest to me. I shut the door on them. I removed myself from them. I got to tell you, that's never the thing 
to do. Now, as you can imagine, let's get back to the story. Most of Matthew's friends were not the religious type. And so when the Pharisees discovered the type of people that Jesus was was eating with, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and scums? The New Living Translation that we read from, or tax collectors and sinners, the New Living Translation that we read from says scum. That's the way they looked at these men. They did not believe that these tax collectors, these sinners, even deserved to go to heaven. They were convinced that a religious person shouldn't have anything to do with a sinful person. As a matter of fact, these religious leaders prided themselves on keeping their distance from sinners. There was even a rabbinic rule that said this. Let not a man associate with the wicked and even to bring him near the law. Did you hear that? Let not a man associate with the wicked even to bring him to the law. But you see, this was an example of of how they took God's word and they twisted it, sometimes intentionally, at, at other times unintentionally, to accomplish their own goals and their own objectives. Now, the Bible does tell us to be a separate people. The Bible tells us that we are to be a holy people. But that doesn't mean that we are to avoid sinners. There's a big difference between separating ourselves from sin and isolating ourselves from sinners. The truth of the matter is we can never be salt and light in the world if we are isolated. For salt to be effective, it has to be rubbed into the meat. For light to be effective, it has to shine in dark places. And we need to understand that that we, as the people of God, will never be effective sitting in our comfortable, safe churches when there is a lost and dying world out there. I can sit back all I want. And praise God and feel good about myself for how I preach and the people that come to Jesus in this place. And you can teach your life group and your little Bible study during the week and you can feel good about all you're doing. But here's what I know. The typical lost person that desperately needs to hear about the grace and mercy of God They're never going to darken our doors. They're never going to come to your Bible study. So we can feel good about all we do here. But understand, we're never going to be salt and light in here. For us to be salt and light, we've got to go out there. So when Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Now, Jesus was really being sarcastic. You know that, don't you? Because none of us are healthy. We're all sick. We all have been infected by this deadly disease called sin. We are walking dead people. And apart from the cure, which is the blood of Jesus, none of us have any hope. And so it's not that there are healthy people out there who don't need Jesus And then there are sick people. 
No, no, there are just some who, who are self-righteous who think they're healthy. And then there are those who realize that they're really sick. But then Jesus said this. He said, don't go. And, or he said, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifice. That's a quote from, from the Old Testament book of Hosea 6.6. 6. What Jesus was saying is what God really wants is God wants us to be merciful. God wants us to love one another. It's not about our religious ceremonies and our religious observances and our religious duties. It's about how we treat one another. It's how we love those who are in need. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? It's found in Luke's gospel. I I believe it's found in Luke chapter 17, chapter 19. But it, or chapter 10, it's found in Luke chapter 10. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells this story of the Good Samaritan. And there's a priest that walks by, a man who was badly beaten and dying. And he doesn't help him. Because he's going to his religious ceremony. And then a Levite comes by. He is a helper to the priest in the temple. And he sees the man and he doesn't stop by and help because... He's busy with his religious stuff too. And then a dirty, no good Samaritan comes by. And he helps the man. Bandages up his wound. He takes him into town. He gets him a room in the hotel. He tells the owner of the hotel, you take care of his needs. And if the money I've given you isn't enough, when I come back through town, I'll give you all the money that I've got so that he is taken care of. Jesus said, which one of these three has has been a neighbor? Which one of these three has reached down and helped the one in need? You see, God isn't concerned as much about us coming on Sunday. And don't get me wrong, we need to be here. But God isn't as concerned about us coming on Sunday and sitting in a seat as he is with us showing love and compassion and sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, out in the world where people desperately need to hear that there's good news. And then Jesus said this. He said, for I've come to call those who think they're, I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. Like I said earlier, Luke tells us that Jesus said, I've come to call those who know they're sinners and know they need to repent. Now, don't miss this. Before Jesus can ever help us, we've got to know we need him. Before Jesus can ever help us, we've got to have a desire to turn from our sin. Do you remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? The religious leader said, the law says stone her, Jesus, What do you say? Jesus knelt down and started scribbling something in the sand and all kinds of people have speculated on what he scribbled in the sand. We don't know what he said. We don't know what he scribbled, but what we do know is that when he looked up, he said, okay, stoner, but you who have no sin, you cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, all those religious leaders left because they all knew that that Jesus called them out for their sins. 
So Jesus was left with this woman caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus looked up and said, woman, where are those men who accused you? And she said, they've left, Lord. Jesus looked at her and said, well, I don't condemn you either. But, remember what he said? He said, go and sin no more. I've shown you grace. I've shown you mercy. I've given you forgiveness. Now go. Leave your life of sin. Now listen. To call sinners, Jesus went where they were. Sometimes we get so caught up in our desire to keep ourselves free from sin that we don't take the time to go places where sinners are to show them the love of God. And we become separated. And the longer we are separated from sinners, the harder it becomes for us to get out in the world and show the world the love of a Savior. Now here's the bottom line. Here's the truth of this story. Religion always separates us from sinners. But Jesus always seeks out sinners. So which are you doing? Let me give you two other stories. And you can turn with me if you want to. The first one is found in Luke chapter 19. It's the story of of Jesus and and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a a tax collector much like Matthew. And, And evidently Zacchaeus was not a very tall man. We remember the song, don't we? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Climbed up in that sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. The Lord said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree for I'm going to your house. He didn't say for tea, did he? For tea? Didn't know they drank tea back then. Been a long time since I sang that song. So Zacchaeus was this tax collector who, who was a sinful man. The Bible tells us that. Jesus went to his house. And look what it says in verse 7. If your Bibles are open, it says, But the people were displeased. He had gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, and they grumbled. Jesus always sought out those who had a need. He went to Zacchaeus' house. He spent time with them. We don't even know what Jesus said. But after Jesus ate with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus said, Lord, I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor. If I've cheated anybody on their taxes, I'm going to give them four times as much as I have taken. His life was changed. Why? Because Jesus went to spend time with the sinner. Now turn with me over to the Gospel of John. The next Gospel over. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is the story of Jesus and, and the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman. And what's interesting about this story is that Jesus strategically located himself at Jacob's well. Sent his disciples away to get food. So that... He could be alone with this woman who was a Samaritan. Now you need to understand rabbis did not associate with Samaritans. They didn't associate with women. 
And they certainly didn't associate with sinful people. And this woman, she was all three. She was a Samaritan. She was worshiping in the wrong place. She didn't understand who God was. She was a woman. And her morals were in question. In John chapter 4, Jesus said in verse 16, Go get your husband so we can talk to him too. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, being God in the flesh, said, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've been honest with me. You have had five husbands. And the man you're living with now, you're not married to. You spoke the truth. You never see Jesus condemning this woman. You see Jesus talking to this woman sharing with this woman and all of a sudden her life was changed in the story of Zacchaeus Jesus said today salvation has come to this house in the story in John chapter 4 verse 42 it says then they said to this woman now we believe not just because of what you told us but we have heard him ourselves and we know that he is the savior of the world Because Jesus was willing to associate with a woman who was a sinful woman, she not only came to know Jesus, her entire village came to know Jesus. Religion separates us from sinners. Jesus seeks out sinners. So what are we doing? Are we separating? Are we seeking out? How are we living? Do we have a strategy in place where we are seeking to reach those who are far from God? What are we thinking? Are we thinking that we are better than them? We would never say they don't deserve God's grace. Some of us. Some of us. We think it. And can I say, look at me. Some of you need to really monitor what you put on social media. Because how you look at sinners, what you think about sinners, is coming out crystal clear. Religion separates. Jesus seeks out. So what is the application? Let me give you several things quickly and we're going to close. First of all, if you're a Matthew, you're a sinner, answer the call like Matthew did. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock your heart's door. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. You say, well, I'm worse than Matthew. Are you worse than Paul? I mean, he was rounding up Christians, putting them to death. I doubt any of us have been worse than that. See, Jesus is calling you. And so if you're here and you haven't surrendered to Jesus... You've never accepted his grace and his mercy. What you need to do today is understand Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
And he wants to forgive you and he wants to save you and he wants to set you free. Second, because no one is righteous. We all need Dr. Jesus. We need to avoid being self-righteous. You need to be careful how you look at other people. The habits they're involved in, the things they're doing and then the thoughts you have. I know I struggle with those things. Maybe you don't. I struggle with them. And so I have to fight against self-righteousness. And I have to remind myself every day, I don't deserve the grace and mercy of God. Apart from his forgiveness, there is not anything righteous within me. So avoid being self-righteous. Third, accept people where they are. Don't expect lost people to act like saved people. That's impossible. And sometimes we look at people who have never encountered the grace and mercy of God and and we judge them in their sin. and, And in reality, they're doing only what they know to do. They're sinning. They're living in rebellion against their God. So we've got to accept people where they are. Fourth, throw a party. You and I as Christ followers need to find ways to build bridges with people that we know who are far from God. Because understand, if all we do do is invite the people we don't know using invite cards and and then we do everything we can to do our very best on Sunday mornings. And, and we do our best to disciple those who come. We are never going to change our world. We'll grow. We'll have people come and we'll have people say, but, but we'll never change the world. The only way that we're going to change the world is when you and I become creative and we begin throwing parties and introducing our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers to the one that has changed our life. We've got to build bridges to Jesus rather than dig moats that keep people from Jesus. Next, we've got to share our story. Now, we're never told in this encounter that Matthew did that. But I imagine he did. Do you remember what we read in John's gospel? I believe it was Andrew that said, I want you to come and meet a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? We need to share our story. Because our story is a story of transformation from Jesus. But finally, if we do that, if we start investing in lost people, and we begin loving on lost people, and we begin taking them where they are and allowing Jesus to do a work in their life, we need to expect opposition Because religious people will always oppose Jesus. So here's an invitation.
There are some of you here this morning who may need the friend of sinners. You've never given your heart and life to Jesus. You've never experienced the forgiveness that only he can bring. You've never understood what it is to be set free from the law. And and maybe, just maybe, there are some of us here who today need a friend of sinners. And if that's you, I'm going to give you an opportunity in a moment to give your heart and life to Jesus. But truth be told, there are many of us here this morning that need to commit to be friends of sinners. We need to start moving out of our comfort zone, moving beyond the four walls of this church, and finding places where we can connect so that we can introduce people to the one who's changed their life. So what about it? I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. And with your head bowed and with your eyes closed, if you're here and you need Jesus, then I want to encourage you right now to humbly pray this prayer to him. Dear Jesus, I come to you today knowing that I am a sinner I've disobeyed you. I've lived life my way. I know that my goodness can never measure up to your perfection. I know that I've got a sinful heart. And I need a new heart. Forgive me. I know you love me. You died on the cross for my sins. You rose from the grave defeating sin and death. Right now, I'm trusting you to save me. I'm giving my life to you. Come in and take control. From this moment on, Jesus, fill me with your spirit and give me the desire and the power to live for you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Now with your head still bowed, your eyes still closed, no one looking around, just very quickly, if you prayed that prayer just then and you meant it with all your heart, just raise your hand, keep it up for just a couple of seconds and then you can put it back down. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? You can put it down. Let me say to you, welcome to God's family. Welcome to God's family. Now I want to lead us in a second prayer. Because there's some of you who are like me, if you were honest. You've gotten saved. To be honest, you haven't really been a friend of sinners like Jesus. And yet today you know you need to. And I'm simply asking you to make the commitment to him. So if that's where you're at, you can pray this prayer. If you really mean it. Dear Jesus, 
You saved me. You changed me. You gave me life. You gave me hope. And yet, people who need what you gave me, I'm not sharing with. I'm not building bridges. I'm not throwing parties. I'm not establishing relationships. I desperately want to. But I'm scared. Maybe I don't know how. And I need you. Today, I'm making a commitment. I want to build bridges. I want to be a friend of sinners. Not just friendly. But I want to be a friend. Introducing them to you. Give me the desire to do that. Give me the power to do that, I pray.